0: good to be with you Kingsway. I'm Matthew, pastor here if I haven't been able to meet you yet. And before we jump into our continued study of Mark, I want to do two things. First, five to eight-year-olds, if your parents so wish, you can head to your classes. Teachers are waiting for you in the back, five to eight-year-olds. And secondly, Gary, thank you for leading us today. Um, yes Uh, I've been in this church a long time and if you haven't been here a long time you would not know that a number of years ago has it been 12 years Gary? 15 years? it's been a while probably less than that Um, Gary regularly led worship here and the more preaching I've been called to do I'm so thankful that this man has stepped up uh, to serve us and I thank God for your example, Gary. You're a gift. You're a gift. Before I pray, begin to preach, let me remind you of one more thing. It is good to preach through books of the Bible. So without turning this into a a whole other sermon in and of itself, If you were listening as Mike read Mark 13, I hope you were hearing things and saying, what in the world is that about? What is this abomination of desolation? And I sure hope Williams can answer all my questions. Well, um, please don't leave the room right now, but I don't think I will. I I don't. Um, My goal this morning is not to answer every question you may have about Mark 13. I am happy to talk at length. Um, afterward if you have particular questions, but I want to remind you that Mark 13 is a good example of why we're committed in this church to preaching through sections of Scripture. Because if we weren't committed to that, how many preachers do you think would pick Mark 13 as a great, simple, crowd-drawing text for a sermon? I don't think it's high on the list, but it's the Word of God. And because we've been preaching through the book of Mark for a number of months, we've come to a point where we hit chapter 13 and we don't want to avoid it. So I want to encourage you with that before we jump in. I'm not going to answer every question, but the Lord has a word for us from this chapter. He doesn't put things in the Bible just to mess with us, just to confuse us. This is here just as much as Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. It's just as inspired. It's from the same God. and We need to remember that. So let's pray. Let's pray. Uh, King Jesus, on a weekend where we have seen a lot of rain, I am thankful that you are the God who waters our souls and nourishes our hearts. Jesus, you promised that if we would believe in you that streams of living water would well out from within us. And so Holy Spirit, I pray this morning as I preach your word, as we together listen to your word and study your word, that you would bring nourishment and strength and life to our souls like only you can. God, you know that there are things that are hard to understand in here. I pray we wouldn't be distracted by that. But that you would give me a mouth to speak clearly and carefully. And you would give all of us, including me, a heart to receive and obey and bow before your word. Thanks for speaking. Help us to listen. Help us even more to obey. Amen. Amen. Well, I don't think you have to work hard, church, to notice that our culture has a certain fascination with the future. Uh, Exhibit A, blockbuster films about the end of the world. Armageddon, Independence Day, The Day After Tomorrow, Oblivion, Interstellar, all of these films, won't ask who has seen which ones, all of these films have a, the same basic plot. Some sort of unimaginable disaster is about to fall upon the Earth, and it's up to an unlikely little group of heroes to prevent worldwide catastrophe and doomsday. That's the basic plot. And I was thinking this week, you know, what is it about these movies that causes us to pay hundreds of millions of dollars to basically watch the same movie every summer. You ever notice that? It's the same plot, unimaginable disaster. I mean, there's little variations. You know, unlikely group of small heroes, tension where you wondered if they're gonna succeed, save the world. I mean, it's, that's the same plot over and over again. So, so what is it about these movies that just keeps drawing us back? Well, you could argue there's Crazy special effects. You could argue that the IMAX experience is pretty cool. But I would argue this. I think part of what brings us back to fascination with the future is found in Ecclesiastes 3.11. He has put eternity into man's heart. Think about that. He, God, has put eternity into your heart. Yet so that He cannot, we cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Do you realize that that God has put something inside of you that longs to know where this entire world is going? He's put that in you, longs to know what the future holds and and if there's an end to the story of our race. So we imagine, we dream, we theorize, we produce movies, and amidst all of it, we try to quiet this gnawing sense inside of us that if we're honest, we really have no idea what the future holds unless God reveals it to us. That was really important. We have no idea what the future holds. That's true. Unless God reveals it to us. Unless He reveals it. We can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end, but God reveals what He has done from the beginning to the end in His Word. Mind you, it's not everything you or this preacher man would like to know about the future. It's not everything. But it's everything we need to know in order to trust God and obey God. That's what He's done. Isaiah 46 says, Remember this. Stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring, listen, the end from the beginning... And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. You know who your God is? He's a God who knows the future so well because He creates it. And He ordains it. And He fashions it. He's not staring into the future, discerning what's waiting for Him. He's creating the future. And He created it from the beginning. And when we're looking at sections of the Bible like Mark 13, where the Lord speaks about the future, Kingsway, there's, there's two guardrails we have to keep in view. Two guardrails that will keep us from, from going off the cliff, going wrong directions with prophecy. Here's guardrail number one, okay? Divinely, the divinely intended effect prophecy like this is obedience, not speculation. Okay, so God's goal in giving us words of prophecy about what's coming in the future, the goal of that is not to create all sorts of speculation. The goal of that is to cause us to obey. Obedience is the goal. So it's, it's important to ask careful questions. For example, is the tribulation mentioned in verses 19 and 20? just about what the Jews experienced before the temple was destroyed in 70 AD? Is it about this intense period of suffering that all Christians will experience right before the Lord comes back? Or is it in some way about both of those things, as well as all the suffering that all of us experience while we're following Jesus in the world? A great question. Great question. We need to ask that question But it's important that we not get stuck in speculation. We have to press through those questions to discern, Lord, what does obeying this word look like? How do I obey it? Remember, God's goal on Sundays is not to fill your head. It is to change your heart. Okay, here's the second guardrail. The truth that matters most could not be more clear. so... There are things in Mark 13 like, who is the abomination of desolation? Great question. I'm not sure I entirely know. That might not be crystal clear. But you know what is clear? Jesus is coming back. Okay? Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, we're going to be held accountable for the way we live. So so think of it this way. This is the second guardrail. If the first one is, don't get caught up in speculation, how do we need to obey? The second one is, we've got to remember that the presence of things we don't understand can't get in the way of obeying the things we do understand. Okay? Keep that in mind. That'll serve you well all over the Bible. So, Mark 13. Uh, Since the middle of chapter 11, Jesus has been teaching in the temple. And you hopefully saw in the first verse that he's now leaving the temple in Jerusalem. A couple of things about this temple. The entire temple complex was twice as big as Solomon's temple. This temple was built by Herod the Great. And it took up about a million and a half square feet. It's about the sixth of the city of Jerusalem. And the foundation of the walls of this temple consisted of these giant stones. Let me define giant for you. 45 feet long, 11 and a half feet high, and 12 feet thick. One stone. One of the foundation stones. And okay, so it, it was an architectural and engineering marvel. And so it's no surprise, as the disciples leave the temple and head up, east of Jerusalem onto the Mount of Olives and look back at the temple. It's no surprise that one of them says, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. That's a big deal. It was beautiful. It, It rivaled the wonders of the ancient world. Now look at Jesus' response. Verse two. Do you see these great buildings? I mean, that's what you would expect, right? If I'm backpacking with a buddy, and I say, dude, look at that mountain. Why do I say that? Because I expect him to say, whoa, that's crazy. And in a sense, Jesus goes along with that. Do, Do you see these great buildings? But look at what he says next. Nobody saw this coming. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. You know, we need to realize something. If you were a Jew, this wasn't just like, oh, the pyramids, that's cool. No. No, if you're a Jew, from the Jewish perspective, the temple wasn't just an amazing building. It was the dwelling place of God on earth. That meant the temple, this physical temple Jesus said was going to get wasted, was the place where priests would make atonement for the sins of man And man could approach God. It wasn't just a building. It represented relationship with God. So to lose the building meant to lose the relationship. Which is why it's no surprise the disciples heard this and said, "Um, You know, Jesus, did I hear you right? That um, that's going to get destroyed. What do they say? When will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? As Matthew records in his gospel. It's interesting that Matthew says it that way. Because on the face of verse 4, it sounds like the disciples are just asking a technical question about when the temple is going to be destroyed. But you can hear the overtones in their question that are bigger than the temple. Matthew picks it up in his gospel. They're asking about when this temple is going to be destroyed. But behind that is a conviction. If that temple is destroyed, that must mean the end of the world is at hand. And so they're not just asking about the destruction of the temple. They're asking about the end of the world. That's going on behind their question. Because the destruction of the temple was such a big deal in their minds That it had to coincide with the end of the world. And one of the things Jesus is doing in this chapter is he's saying, guys, not so fast. Okay, don't confuse those two things. They're not going to happen at the same time. The temple's not going to be destroyed at the same time that I return and the world comes to an end. He's, He's pushing these things apart. And yet, at the same time, he's moving back and forth in this chapter, and this is part of what makes it difficult between describing the demise of the physical temple in Jerusalem, on the one hand, and talking about his return and the end of the world on the other hand. He's moving back and forth between both questions throughout the chapter. And so I would say that verses 1 to 23 focus primarily on the destruction of the physical temple, which again happened in 70 A.D., And verses 24 to 37 focus on Christ's return. But, church, the divisions are not entirely clear. And please listen to this. In many ways, Jesus describes God's judgment of a physical temple in Jerusalem as a foretaste, an appetizer of sorts, a a foreshadowing of the demise of the end of the world. He's using the one to illustrate the other. And it's the commonalities or the shared threads between those two events. The destruction of the temple and the return of Christ at the end of the world. What those things have in common, that's what I want to focus on this morning. Because many of the same points Jesus makes about the destruction of the temple are the same points Jesus makes about the end of the world. Make sense? He's going to make points about the destruction of the temple that are very similar to the points... He's making about the end of the world when he returns. And those are the common threads I'm going to focus on. So he doesn't tell us everything we want to know about the future. But he tells us all we need to obey and trust him. Here's the first thing. Point number one, the first thing Jesus tells us about the future. Using the destruction of the temple as a foretaste of his return. Point one, there is only one glory that will stand the test of time. Only one. Friend, you should perceive in the prophesied destruction of the temple the ultimate demise of two things that are a lot bigger than the temple. First, we should perceive the futility of all the material glories in this world. All of them. In the demise of the temple, we should perceive in the leveling and breaking of those stones in 70 A.D., we should perceive the futility of all the material glories in the world. Those stones were impressive. If you lived back then, they, they were the symbol of all that looked immovable and enduring in the material world. And less than 40 years later, they were gone leveled, broken, wasted by the Romans. That's what happened to the glory of the temple. I wonder what glory is filling your mind right now. Your mind. Maybe it's the glory of your physical beauty. You're enamored with how you look and want others to experience the same maybe it's the glory of your achievements the degrees and promotions you've earned or the awards you've won maybe it's the glory of your possessions the house you live in or the car you drive maybe it's the glory of the places you've you've traveled or you want to travel i I can't see into your heart friend but god does god does he he knows what glories are wrapped around your mind in the quiet moments of the day and night when you don't have to do anything. He knows what glories are filling your mind. And I want to warn you, as Jesus warned His disciples that day when they gazed upon the temple, none of the glories of this world will endure. Not one. Don't create an exception clause right now in your mind. Not one will endure. Every single one of them will fade, including things like, notice, sun, moon, and stars that right now seem utterly immovable. Look look at verse 24, 25. Jesus speaks of his return. But in those days after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Why is that? Why why is creation crumbling? Why is creation trembling? Because one who is greater than all of creation now outshines all of creation is at hand. That's why they're trembling. I mean, think about that. The sun can't keep going. That says something about the glory of your God. Verse 26. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. So I ask you this question, church. If you want to see power and you want to see glory, don't look at yourself, the people around you, or anything in this world. Look at the Son of God. That's where you look. There are going to be men this afternoon on the television, who collide as hard as they can with other men and think, I am glorious, and they're going to dance to show it to you. (laughs) Wish they wouldn't. And we get caught up in that. When the Lord returns... The sun's going to crumble. The moon's not going to work. Because they know the voice of the one who made them. And they bow before the glory of the Son of God. And today, the Lord charges you to do the same. Fix your eye on the mind of, on Jesus and dwell on the majesty and mercy of His plan to redeem sinners like you and me from the curse of death and return one day so that we could live with Him forever. Fix your mind on that. That's glory. There's only one glory that's going to stand the test of time. The glory of the temple didn't survive. The glory of this material world will not survive. There's only one glory that will survive, and his name is Jesus. That's the first thing we need to perceive in destruction of the temple. Here's the second. In the demise of the temple, we should perceive the futility, not just of the material world, but the futility of all our efforts to secure the favor of God, apart from faith in Christ. Do you know why Jesus said the temple would be destroyed? Why did he say that? Well, it's kind of a trick question. He doesn't say that in Mark 13. The disciples don't ask him the why question here. They ask him the when question, but it's the why that creates the when, and Jesus tells us why in Luke 19. Listen to these words. For the days will come upon you, when your enemies will set up a barricade around you, speaking of Jerusalem, and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Okay, so the Romans laid siege to Jerusalem, leveled the temple in 70 AD. And in their mind, they were punishing the Jewish zealots for rebelling against the authority of Caesar. You know what was actually going on? They were an instrument of divine discipline used by God to judge His rebellious people for rejecting God's authority. They refused to submit to the words of the prophets. They refused to submit to the word of the Son. And in 70 AD, they suffered the consequences. Okay, now here's where we have to be careful. It is very easy to write that off as stupid. If I was there and I saw the Son of God standing in front of me and was told that He came to make a way for relationship with God through the sacrifice of His life on the cross in a way that no bull or cow or sheep or goat in the temple could ever create, I would believe in Him. I mean, how hard could that be? God is standing in front of you. Well, it's harder than you think. All you have to do is believe that by being a good person, or at least by being better than the person next door to you, that you too can earn the favor of God. That's all you have to do to reject Jesus. And Midlothian is full of people who believe that. And it's the antithesis of the gospel. And sadly, there are far too many days when I believe that. That I can do something somehow through my life to secure the favor of God in a way that I don't need a Savior. In the demise of the temple, we should see the futility of, of the glories of this material world, and the futility of looking for relationship with God through any other means than faith in Christ. That's what that should scream to us. There's only one glory that's going to stand the test of time. here's Here's the second thing about the future. Jesus is telling us in this chapter, until Christ returns, following Jesus means suffering So remember, the destruction of the temple in this chapter is a foretaste of the end of the world. So while the suffering in verses 5 to 23 is characterized in terms of what Jesus' followers were going to experience leading up to and during the siege of Jerusalem, the characteristics of their suffering are no less true than what every Christian will experience before Jesus comes back. It's a foretaste. We can learn. So so here's the first thing we see about our suffering before the Lord returns. Our suffering is global. I mean by global, I simply mean that we live in a world that's been ravaged by the effects of sin, a fallen world. So wars, earthquakes, famines, other forms of environmental suffering, where the world seems to break under the the consequences of sin, those are warnings, friends, of coming judgment. They're warnings. And they remind us that that all is not the way it was meant to be in our world. Right? And that we are waiting for a Savior who will make not just things right between us and God, but will renew the entire world. It's not just that we have an issue with God. This whole world has been corrupted by sin. That's why there's wars and earthquakes and famines. It's an effect of sin, of the fall. And the fact that our suffering is global points to the fact that our redemption will be cosmic. And we can thank God that he's a professional when it comes to making right what sin has made wrong. It's global. Here's the second thing. Our suffering is public. It's public. So Jesus warned his disciples that they were about to experience some serious religious and civil persecution. You know, notice in this chapter, nobody dares to touch Jesus or his followers. That's about to change. Chapter 15 in Mark, he's crucified, everybody becomes fair game. It's open season on Christians. And the book of Acts and the history of the church in the last 2,000 years proves the truthfulness of Jesus' words. Now, that's hard for us to believe as Americans, right? Because we live in a day and age where we enjoy tremendous religious freedom. But, but I would say this, folks, our culture is on the move on this. It's on the move. Religious intolerance is on the rise and it's increasingly difficult to walk out your biblical convictions on issues of morality or sexuality in the public square. That's getting more difficult. So to the degree you are even now pressured or you feel pressure to submit your convictions to the consensus of the majority at school, at work, or online, know this, know this, Jesus said it was going to happen. Don't be surprised. He said it was going to happen, and he's not surprised by difficult questions or awkward silence. So, he promises that whether or not you are being interrogated by the Chinese police outside a house church halfway around the world, or by a brilliant professor down the street after your college class, he promises this to you. Verse 11, it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit speaking through you. Here's what that means. If as you think about the pressure to go quiet with your Christian convictions when you're in the public square, and you feel that pressure, and you think, I don't have a clue what I'm going to say tomorrow morning. If he asks me that question, I have no idea what I'm going to do. You know, my best guess is I'll say something that sounds stupid and inept, so I'll just try to be quiet, and I don't think I heard that, and leak. No, don't be anxious beforehand. You have, Christian, the Spirit of God inside of you, and He's promised you that in the moment when your suffering is public, and you feel public pressure to compromise on your Christian convictions, He's going to give you words to speak. He's going to help you. You don't need a master's in apologetics. You need the Holy Spirit. And he's given it to you. Our suffering's global. Our suffering's public. Third, our suffering is relational. I don't think I have to make a hard case on this one. What, what do I mean here? Well, I, I simply mean that your choice to follow Christ may very well turn some of your closest family members or friends into enemies. And I've spent time talking with enough of you to know that we're living there. And Jesus goes so far as to say in verse 13, you will be hated by all for my namesake. Are you ready for that? Did you sign up for that <laughs> when you agreed to follow Christ? That, that's what he's promising about our future, that our suffering will be relational, which means two things. Don't be surprised when people reject you or distance themselves from you because of the choices you've made to follow Jesus and make sure as far as it depends on you, that you're being hated for the sake of Christ and not because you're a rude, unloving, bitter person. (laughs) Okay, don't Don't say that just because you're in a relational conflict with somebody, I'm suffering for the sake of Christ. Well, you may be, but you know what else? You may be stupid. And you may be sinning all over the place. And usually it's a great big confusing mixture of the two. So what do we have to remember? We've got to be humble and make sure that as far as it depends on us, we're living at peace with all men. And not be surprised when friends or family members that rightfully ought to love and care for us, hold us at arm's length because we won't submit to their convictions. Fourth, the suffering that we will experience until he returns is spiritual. Global, public, relational, spiritual. Look at verse 22 for false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. This is one of those points where it can be easy to get hung up on, well, who are the false Christ? Who are the false prophets? Let me, let me keep this really simple for you. I'm not talking about the crazies on the news who walk around and say, I'm Jesus, and convince people to give them billions of dollars. False Christs and false prophets are men and women who breathe lies about who God is and what God's doing. That's all they are. And friend, you're surrounded by them. It's not just the loudmouth heretic. It's the best-selling author who convinces you that you don't need Jesus. You just need to believe in yourself. It's the magazine advertisement that says you don't you don't need Jesus. You just need to lose a few pounds and spend a week at Cancun. Fly Delta. It's the upperclassman who invites you to explore your sexuality with him. Or the girlfriend who says you should ditch your husband if a better model shows up. False Christ and false prophets are all the voices around us, church, that are trying to convince you and I to do life our way or their way instead of God's way. And that, Jesus promises, will always be part of our suffering until he returns. And we need to be ready for that and not surprised by that. We need to remember That greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. And that you are not set up by the Lord to be a helpless victim of the voices of falsehood. You have the mind of Christ. And he will equip you to discern his voice from the lie through his word through His Spirit, through the help of His people, so that you can stand on truth. Okay, finally, here's the last thing about the suffering Jesus promises until He returns. I would argue this is the most comforting of them all. Our suffering is controlled. It's global, it's public, it's relational, it's spiritual, it's controlled. Look at verse 20. This is amazing. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. Just think about that. Think about that. In light of our sin against our maker, what do we deserve? Eternal suffering. What have we received? Light and momentary affliction. So are they painful? Yes. Yes. Are there times when it feels like you're going to die under the weight of sorrow in this world? Yes. Is God going to let you keep suffering until your faith is shipwrecked and you abandon Christ? No. No. He's not. Romans 8. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? That's a promise, friend. Your suffering is controlled. That means your suffering is not going to win. Jesus is going to win. He is holding you. He is sustaining you. He is carrying you when you can barely whisper for help. He's your father. You're his child. And he's not going to let you be tempted beyond your ability. You're going to prevail over your suffering. Not because you're strong, you're weak. Put that on Facebook. But God is in control. You are weak, friend. But your God is in control. and He has promised that there is no suffering coming your way in the future if you are His child that is going to snatch you out of His hands. Your light and momentary afflictions are preparing for you an eternal weight of glory beyond it. All comparison. So, how do we respond to all that suffering? Jesus says that till he returns, following Jesus means suffering for his sake. How do we respond to all that suffering? One word, endure. Look at verse 13. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Or verse 23. But be on guard. I have told you all things Beforehand, Don't be surprised when you suffer, friend. And when it comes, choose to persevere knowing the Lord will deliver you from it. God will save you, but you have to endure. And not just for a little while. What does Jesus say? Endures to the end. I don't like that. I don't. I want the Lord to give me a date at this age or this month or this week or this day this suffering I'm experiencing following you, Lord, is going to end. He doesn't give us that. I mean, in many cases, he cuts it short. But the call for our endurance, friend, is a call to fix our eyes on the return of our King. And you and I need to set ourselves up to endure until that, And not hold God hostage to making all things right before we get there. That's hard. That takes humility. But it's the call he's given us to endure until that day. Set your hope on the return of your king and you'll never be disappointed. Here's the last thing. Last thing Jesus says about our future Only one glory stands the test of time. Until he comes back, we're going to suffer for his sake. The last thing he says, when Christ returns, we're going to be held accountable for the work he entrusted to us. He's going to hold us accountable. Look at verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. What's it like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. OK, that is not an infomercial for five hour energy or monster drinks or whatever. Jesus isn't talking about. Bing! He's talking about your inside, your heart. Are you spiritually awake? Because Jesus is warning us in this chapter against two equally dangerous tendencies. At the beginning, he warns us against impatient presumption, thinking that the end is at hand when in reality it's years away. People who are, get fixated on prophetic charts and timelines and lose sight of the call to patient endurance. That's danger one, impatient presumption. At the other end of the chapter, what I just read, Jesus warns us against a second danger, namely lazy indifference. Lazy indifference. That's the danger of thinking that the end, when Jesus returns, is years away. When in reality, it's close at hand, and you end up fixated on momentary pleasures and lose sight of eternal reality. And I would argue, Kingsway, it's the second danger where we get most in trouble. Lazy indifference to the things of God. And in my own experience, the path to getting there is gradual and deadly. Gradual and deadly. You know, where where once your heart was alive to God, you were amazed by grace. You couldn't wait to be with his people. You couldn't wait to open his word. If you're honest, he's just boring right now. He's just boring. I mean, you're, you're grateful that people around you are kind of psyched about Jesus and all that. Good for you. But if you're honest in your own heart, he's, he's boring. If that's you, I would say this. It's normal for Christians, genuine Christians, to experience times or seasons of life where the Lord feels far off and our hearts seem cold. Don't presume you are not a Christian because right now the Lord seems boring to you. But at the same time, if over an extended period of time you discern little or no desire inside of you to know Jesus or follow Jesus, then it's quite possible that you're spiritually asleep. And when you're sp- sleeping spiritually, you're not enduring. You're sleeping. You're drifting. And you need to wake up. You need to confess your apathy, confess your laziness, confess your lack of desire for God, the idolatry of looking for joy in other things besides God. Because, Christian, the Lord has given you and I spiritual work to do before He returns. He's given you work to do. You you have sin to conquer, okay? You have gifts to develop. You have a body to serve. You have a community to love, a gospel to share, men and women to disciple, churches to plant, children to teach, friends to build up, and the most glorious King in the universe to love, It's the work He's given you to do, by His grace and for His glory. Your God-given calling could not be more active as you wait for the return of your King. And your activity in that calling could not be more critical in ensuring that you will endure in faith until He returns. I love how Jesus says it in verse 10. Listen to how he summarizes our mission. Look there with me. What do we need to be about until he comes back? What is this work for which we'll be held accountable? Verse 10, And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. That's the work. That's the work. That was Jesus' mission for his followers in the first century. That's Jesus' mission for you and I today. And by the way, that mission starts with proclaiming the gospel to your own heart. You can't proclaim to the nations or the people around you what you're not proclaiming to your own heart on the drive to work or at the breakfast table. You have to start there with proclaiming the gospel to yourself. So in conclusion, friend, I challenge you, if Christ returned this afternoon, would you be ready? Would He find you faithful? Because the question isn't If he's coming back, the question is, how much longer do we have to wait? Because on this side of the coming of Christ, we live, the Bible says, in the last days. The the next big event in the history of God's work in the world is what? The return of Christ. There's no more big events that we're waiting for. Jesus has come. He has poured out his Holy Spirit. And the Bible says we are now living, since Jesus ascended into heaven, in the last days you have got to stay awake. We have got to be alert. We cannot sleep spiritually because this Savior's coming back. Our King's returning. Here's the bottom line. Amidst all the things Jesus says about our our future, there's only one glory that's going to stand the test of time. Until He comes back, we're going to be suffering for His sake. And when He comes back, He's going to hold us accountable for the mission of the gospel he gave to us. With all that going on, take this away. Main point of Mark 13. The assurance of Christ's return requires of you vigilant endurance in the mission of the gospel. That's the point. That's why Mark 13 is here, to convince you Christians And if you're not a Christian, to convince you as well that the assurance of Christ's return requires vigilant, watchful endurance in the mission of the gospel. King's Way, I challenge you to be faithful with that mission. Not because a pastor said it, but because your king says it, and he's coming back. Let's pray. Oh Lord, you don't tell us everything we'd like to know about the future, but you tell us all we need to know in order to know you and follow you. God, thank you for the assurance that you're coming back one day. And I pray, Jesus, that until you return, you would find us faithful, vigilant, watchful, in the mission of the Gospel that You have entrusted to us. Lord, I pray we would would do that in our suffering for Your sake. And I pray we would do that by guarding our wandering hearts and minds from becoming captivated with any glory but You. Lord, I... I pray right now for the gifts of confession. And that where any of us in this room hear these things, hear of your return. And if we're honest, we're asleep at the wheel spiritually. I pray, God, that you would show us that right now wherever that's going on, whatever that looks like. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that You would wake us up. We need You, God, to wake us up. You know our frailty. You are familiar with our wandering affections. And I pray today, my brothers and sisters, that you would wake us up. That you would open our eyes to see the glory of our King and to live today with our hope fully set on your return. Lord, I pray we would become increasingly a church that makes no sense to the people around us if the return of Jesus isn't true. That when people look at us, they would say, I don't, I can't explain how these folks live unless their king is coming back God make us that kind of people protect us from becoming cultural Christians that do this on Sunday and live as if you are never coming back until we walk back in this building forgive us for that deliver us from that wake us up make us vigilant amen let's stand and sing